Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a triple specialized hematologist, medical oncologist, also known as the Octoc on social media. And we have a very special episode today. It's almost the universe kind of speaking to you. And that's because I have Dr. Cody Peterson, who actually DM'd me, that stands for direct message, on LinkedIn and was very like gracious and humble about just saying, hey, from one educator to another, I just wanted you to know that one of your podcasts was very influential and had direct relevance and now treatment implication, I think, uh, for your family member. That was with Corey Painter, which was a very rare disease um, podcast uh, scenario. So Cody, that's where we started. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell people uh, before I let you introduce yourself, because you got so many different exciting things. But you are your pediatric pharmacist by trade, and you still do that very much full time. But you have a very deep knowledge and understanding of something we get asked all the time on Target Cancer Podcast, as well as my DMs, and that's THC and cannabis and marijuana relevance in cancer, because we know there's something there, and we have been. So for that reason, I'm very, very excited to have you. I know you're a founding member of Pharmacists Cannabis Coalition of California, where you're doing things responsibly in health and database, and everyone's like, Sanjay, stop talking. We really want to hear him introduce himself, but I'm, I'm very excited because you're also the chief science officer of the Conigma, which I love puns. So with all that said, Dr. Cody Peterson, welcome and thank you for being here. Hey, Sanjay, thank you so much for having me and, and for that, that warm introduction. Uh, it just so happens that I'm a bit of a pharmacology nerd uh, and, and cannabis or marijuana, as it, as it is also known as, uh, is one of my favorite substances to teach about. So uh, excited to be here and sharing my story. And it is a little heartfelt. I, I did reach out to you thanking you for the episode that featured Corey. Um, because my sister-in-law is uh, very beloved to me. She has unfortunately been diagnosed with that rare type of cancer, angiosarcoma, as currently battling it and, and through the physician that was recommended to her by Corey. Um, and, and so it's a bit serendipitous that we, that we meet here today. And I think that's the purpose of what you're already doing with your education, taking something that, you know, quote unquote, everyday people want to know about because it's hard to find from traditional medicine. And also while practicing traditional medicine, wanting to make that information accessible and beneficial. It's what we all want to do, right? The people that do these things, it's to be able to democratize uh, information to hopefully improve access just because knowledge gaps are not a reason to not have uh, or be privy to things that can make someone's life more pleasant, longer, you know, better outcomes and all of those things. And that's why I'm very like eager kid in a candy store to have you because it's hard to find information on THC, cannabis, and marijuana. And I think, you know, to start, part of the reason is because, every, you know, a lot of people want to just make it an obtuse kind of binary thing, like very like, is it or isn't it? Does it cure cancer or does it not? <laughs> is it using a cancer or does it not? And obviously there's a lot of different applications that go outside of that. And that's probably one of the things, first things you encounter is really to break down what we're speaking on and, and what is the relevance of that question, right? All the time. So I think one of the things I would point out first and foremost is cannabis is one of the most widely used substances, the wide, most widely used illicit substance around the world. Uh, millions upon millions of people are consuming cannabis for both medical and adult use or recreational purposes all around the world every day. Unfortunately, the uh, medical education system, particularly in North America, has basically turned a blind eye to this, which leaves most of the information uh, to to blog posts, Reddit, fa Facebook, um, and there's a lot of misinformation that gets repeated, regurgitated, and rewritten 
um, even if it's not based in fact. And so we've got a lot of mistrust of cannabis in the medical space. We've got a lot of belief in cannabis in the in the patient space. And what I'm trying to do is help bridge that gap. And that's both with the nonprofit that's aiming to educate pharmacists, but also with the Conigma that aims to to really try to bring the science to the people and help them understand both the pros, the cons, and the limitations of cannabis medicine, not just as it relates to um, to cancer, but for all conditions and also for all those questions that people might have just about cannabis the, and the chemical constituents in it, how to grow it, everything everything of the likes. Yeah, hundred percent. Like hundred percent. That's that's the key to really anything. Education, treatments, and everything. It's like what is you know. What's the circumstance? What does it involve? What's the what's the end goal? So you said like medical uses, right? Obviously, it is something that's used medically, is prescribed. And there's indications. What are some of those medical uses? Let's start there. Where you know, usually medical uses are data supported to some degree to ameliorate some disease process, be it emotional, mental, uh, physical. What are some of those uses? Maybe California is a little more unique than across the country, but but some of the ones that may be more accessible in different states. Totally. So historically, and I mean deep history, cannabis has been used for either medical or, or spiritual religious purposes for thousands of years. Now, certainly it's never been in as many form factors as potent or as available it is, is today. But this is ancient medicine, undoubtedly used in Egyptian cultures, in, in ancient Jewish cultures, um, and all, all around the world. Uh, now, Let's jump ahead a few thousand years from that ancient historical use to historical use in the United States. Uh, in 1984, um, well after cannabis became a Schedule One substance, um, meaning that it is the most highly controlled, and the FDA claimed or states that it has no medical benefit, the FDA approved in 1984 Marinol uh, for the use in treating HIV/AIDS wasting syndrome, um, and then shortly after, it was also approved for chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. So. This is Marinol, a.k.a. Uh, Dronabinol, a.k.a. THC. So the active constituent in marijuana that gets you high was FDA approved in 1984. Long before we even knew how it worked or why it worked, we just knew that it was able to relieve nausea and to help with appetite. So there's already we have an established medical role of the constituent or one of the constituents in cannabis. Now, as time has gone on, that has tremendously expanded. Now there are 38, and plus Washington, D.C., so 39 places in the United States that have agreed that medical cannabis, despite its federal Schedule One status, meaning it's, uh, again, highly addictive and has no medical value, 39, 38 states uh, have actually declared it as medicine. Every one of those states has different rules. As you sort of mentioned, California has a, a bit of an open book. There's a list of about 20 conditions and a caveat that says doctors can prescribe or not, that's the wrong term, actually, prescriptions are not allowed with Schedule One substances. Doctors may recommend medical cannabis for whatever condition they feel is refractory to other treatments. So uh, a bit of an open label. And this um, is, is in pretty uh, strict contrast compared to states, say, like Pennsylvania or Minnesota, that have a very strict list of conditions that may qualify. Multiple sclerosis, chronic pain in some places, uh, glaucoma and other places, and there's mixed evidence around the utility of medical cannabis in these in these conditions. There is good uh, pharmacologic underpinnings, mean, meaning uh, rationale as to why cannabis and THC 
may help these conditions. However, there's not the rigorous FDA-required uh, placebo-controlled double-blinded trials that takes a drug from um, that preclinical status all the way to being able to be prescribed. So different layout in every state throughout the country. Um, the uses are very broad, but the most common uses and most common reported benefits from patients are particularly oriented towards pain, towards sleep, uh, and towards nausea. Those are probably the most common uses. Um, and that, that includes uh, our oncology patients. That those are the primary reasons they're using them. So it's very interesting. You know, you're, you were saying basically, and I'm, I guess kind of embarrassed I didn't really think of it this way, is that it's not necessarily evidence-based, but there are some underpinnings, to use your term, uh, that are theoretically, you know, sound on why you may have this kind of more abstract uh, or open, you know, blank check or open uh, open book, I guess, use or recommendation for the product. And that's, you know, that is quite divergent compared to what is prescribed, like you said, where, you know, there's data. It's like, I kept hearing a residency. You have to practice like evidence-based medicine. Evidence -based. I was like, what does that mean? I'm like, of course, like you want to know what it works. But I didn't realize it meant like, even if something sounds like it makes perfect sense, it doesn't necessarily. Like one of the examples I was sharing today with a patient is, you know, kind of an embarrassment to medicine. It's like, obviously, if someone's iron deficient, you would just give them more iron, right? Like you would want to do iron three times a day. It's like, oh, one's well, not enough. Do three times a day. Do it every day. And then it's like, not that long ago, we were just kind of like, oops, like actually doing the iron that frequently actually tells, you know, your GI gut system and something called hepcidin that says, whoa, I'm getting toxic level exposure to this element and it actually down regulates the absorption. Absorbing. So then we had like, what exactly, it actually absorbs less. So that's where something in theory, you're low on iron, bro, give them iron, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, we need to back off. And now it's even debated if once a day is too much and to go kind of every other day. So my question is, but at least in this in this case, when it comes to THC and cannabis, um, that they're saying we're not saying it's data proven, but we're just saying you can consider its use based on its you know constituents, perhaps because it's been around for thousands of years. Why do you think that is? And is there any other product that? And maybe you're like Sanjay, there's a bunch, but but are there other products that doctors have this kind of like language where they're allowed to recommend without necessarily evidence? Just that's just based on theory. Yes, actually, any medicine doctors can practice their the art of medicine without solid evidence. So any medicine that's FDA approved, physicians can use off label. In fact, something like 20% of all prescriptions in medicine are off label and something like 40% of all pediatric medicines, which is my my practice space are off label. So this right. is not new. Uh, and and the reason that cannabis is the exception here is not because it is so different than other medicines uh, or has to be treated with some sort of strict control or, or, or uh, fear. But instead, the legal, the legality of this product, it, this, this Schedule 1 status means that doctors cannot recommend it. It means that it falls into the category of drugs of abuse rather than uh, therapeutic agents. They and can't recommend it or prescribe it? Recommend. You, you cannot prescribe herbal cannabis you can, however, prescribe FDA-approved drugs that are made from cannabis constituents. So one example I already alluded to is Marinol. It is THC, exactly THC. However, it is made in a laboratory and not extracted from a plant. Yeah. Another example is a product that is FDA-approved back in 2018 that I dispense regularly what? at the hospital. 
which is known as Epidiolex, which is isolated CBD from a plant. In fact, it's the first cannabis-derived medicine that has been FDA-approved. So there are prescribable options. However, botanical cannabis, herbal cannabis, remains a Schedule One substance, according to DEA and FDA. And as such, we cannot prescribe it. Insurance companies won't allow it. Uh, hospitals open themselves up to to risk allowing these products to even move move through their hospital. So it's a complicated situation driven by federal illegality more than it is about sort of the safety profile of the medicine. Right. But is there, so are there other, like, again, pardon my ignorance, I guess I'm just a big rule follower, but like, like, are there category ones that are, like, can be recommended by doctors? Slowly but surely, that is happening. So uh, there's not that many Schedule One substances in general. Um, you know, when we think of drugs of abuse and dangerous drugs, we even think of, of uh, fentanyl. That's sort of like the, the drug that, uh, that's on everyone's mind right now. It took 80,000 Americans' lives last year. But fentanyl is not a Schedule One substance. Fentanyl is a Schedule Two substance, which means the FDA says this is highly addictive and highly dangerous. However, we agree that there is a medical application. So um, Schedule One is actually a pretty small category that includes things like LSD acid, um, psychedelic mushrooms, um, marijuana, as we mentioned. I know psychedelic mushrooms are being used like and effectively, supposedly, like in PTSD and trauma and and then the VA veterans. I know, at least this is me personally, that maybe that's a similar example of exactly you know, where I was going. That yep. is right. Oh, forgive and, me. Yes, so continue that. No, it's okay. Uh, but that's exactly where where I wanted to take this is that even though mushrooms remain a Schedule One substance, uh, states like Oregon are now permitting their use with the recommendation of a physician at a certified clinic. And that has sort of been the first domino to fall in a very similar pathway that we're seeing happen for uh, for marijuana or cannabis. That's probably the only good example that looks like it, a natural product that is a Schedule One uh, status that's being researched. But there is active research being done on some of those substances that I mentioned, um, like LSD or uh, another example would be MDMA or ecstasy which uh, is not a, a botanical product like marijuana, but it is a Schedule One substance, that's actively being researched and moving towards pharmaceutical approval. Um, but that is a much easier task because this is a synthetic drug and it's a single molecule as opposed to botanical cannabis, which is literally hundreds of things uh, in herbal form that, that we still don't have a, a firm grasp on. What are the therapeutic components? What are the more dangerous components? Um, and and how do we regulate this like a drug? Because it's not a drug, it's, it's an herb. So to those points, I'm going to ask you probably your favorite question. <laughs> Go for Maybe it. Maybe you might get some undertones there of uh, sarcasm. What do you tell someone when they ask the question, does or can cannabis or THC cure cancer or treat cancer? I imagine you've gotten this question before All as the time. well. <laughs> and I have, I just, I just, I'm going to start sending them to your profile. <laughs> Great. I, I would appreciate the traffic. So, you know what I say to that person? Depends on what cancer you have, because cancer is millions of different things, right? It is a, it is a out of control version of your own cells. Right. Uh, and so whether THC can help alleviate the symptoms of cancer versus treat that cancer, Versus potentially, in rare cases, worsen that cancer is entirely dependent on that tumor, that cancer that we're dealing with. 
So and there so, are tumors in cancers. This, this is exciting. That where they may have some early data that show that it has anti-cancer or anti-neoplastic value. And it has for since the 1970s. The first study that showed that was in the 1970s, before we understood how it worked or what it did. Anti-cancer, like just sort of generic because I don't want to say anti-tumor, uh, anti-cancer properties are actually well-known established effects of cannabinoids. Now, when I say that, THC is one of hundreds, if not potentially thousands, when you, depending on what your definition is, cannabinoids that could be available. THC is one single phytocannabinoid, meaning it comes from a plant. And there is hope in a certain subset of, of cancers that THC could have direct benefit at reducing the, in, you know, the aggressive nature of cancer. So plain and simple, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened in 1970 where we said, where you said there, that was first data kind of suggested? Yeah. So basically we, we, this is early days for even oncology research, but basically they took cell lines of certain types of, of cancer, whether it was a bladder cancer or a leukemia, and they took those cancers and they exposed it in a test tube to THC. And lo and behold, they found that the cancer died. And, and that is really exciting. Of course, I'm not a test tube. You're not a test tube. Uh, and, and getting the THC concentration to the level that they found in that study in your body takes a lot of THC. That was my question, yeah. Like it was it, probably a, just an unrealistic like a concentration of THC. Okay. As, as preclinical studies often are, even using you right. know, uh, chemotherapeutic agents, oftentimes we find that, oh, it worked in a test tube, but it doesn't work in humans because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so that was sort of the early idea. But I, I will point out, so one thing we haven't talked about yet, we talked about the broad applications of cannabis, all these conditions, including directly fighting cancer, like we just alluded to. Why? How? What do you mean, you know, THC can do this? And it actually comes back to before anything to do with any plant or herb, and it has to do with something inside of you, inside of me, inside of the birds in the trees, the lizards in the ground, and the fish in the sea. We all share a common system, and this system is known as the endocannabinoid system. So endo is the prefix meaning inside or to be produced with inside. And cannabinoid is named aptly because we first discovered these molecules in the cannabis plant. So THC in particular, when consumed and ingested, activates the receptors of our endocannabinoid system, and it causes a litany of effects. The one that's, that's best known is the high, right? It's the... Um, psychotropic actions of THC that everyone knows. But that's not the only effect of THC. This endocannabinoid system is actually what's known as a uh, master homeostatic regulatory system. So it's inside of all animals on Earth, and it helps regulate countless functions. Um, the primary, you know, mnemonic, let's say, that, to talk about this is eat, sleep, rest, uh, digest, and protect. And those are sort of the, the five sort of words that we can ascribe to what it does. But these cannabinoids and it, that are produced inside our bodies, endocannabinoids, are responsible for regulating our immune system, regulating our cognition, regulating wakefulness versus sleep, regulating um, salivation and the production of fluids in our body. It's uh, GI motility, how fast our belly moves. These are all connected to this homeostatic system, the system that is meant to keep us in balance. So when you're saying the, the endocannabinoid system, is that 
a defined paradigm that has been observed with high accuracy on pre-existing receptors that are stimulated with other things, meaning the mu, you know, mu receptors like on, on the spinal cord and then, you know, GABA stuff, right? When it relates to alcohol and benzos, are we saying that basically the constellation of that, those relationships, acetylcholine and these receptors that already exist can be stimulated by other things. Are we borrowing those and making something that makes a lot of sense as an endocannabinoid uh, framework or, or system or, are these receptors specifically synergized or activated or, or deactivated, I guess, depending on the mechanism, by cannabinoids themselves? Or is that a dumb question? Uh, it's not a dumb question. Certainly not. There's no dumb questions. Uh, so so let's put it this way. We ta- you just mentioned the opioid receptors, which are densely located in our certain parts of our brain, in particular the pre complex that drives respiratory rate and certain parts of the brain that that are perceiving our environment. Uh, and those receptors are pretty abundant in depending on where you are in the brain. The GABA receptors and GABA neurons, so GABA is sort of the brake pedal of the brain, are really abundant and all over the place. Acetylcholine has uh, tremendous roles all throughout the body. These are all neurotransmitters. And the regulatory system, the feedback mechanism that exists in nearly every cell or cell type in our body is the endocannabinoid system. So endocannabinoids regulate the release of GABA and the release of glutamate. They directly connect to the mu opioid receptors um, and part of our endorphin system. They are directly connected to the acetylcholine neurons that drive salivation and lacrimation or tear uh, tear production. The endocannabinoid system is a bit of like the mesh that binds all these other systems, helping them to self-regulate and balance. And what's cool is it actually has nothing to do with the cannabis plant. The cannabis plant, 8 million years ago, figured out how to hijack this system uh, of animals. What was my this question. system does is it runs off of the fats that we consume and have in our cellular membrane. And so it's actually a lipid-driven uh, system. That, that takes fats that we have consumed and stored in our body to create homeostatic molecules that keep all those other systems in check. What are some of those molecules? Like, what are they called? So the most famous molecule uh, is known as anandamide, which is, is derived from Sanskrit, meaning the bliss molecule. And it's released in, during things that feel good. So this is winning a soccer game and maybe having sex or, you know, uh, so many other things, exercising anandamide is produced that is by far the best one but it's not really named anandamide they just gave it a cute name because that's how scientists remember things it's actually known as n uh, arachidinoyl ethanolamine and um that it's a omega-6 fatty acid base and it's actually extremely closely related to molecules you've already learned about which are called eicosanoids prostaglandins thromboxane and many of the arachidonic acid pathway molecules, if, if our viewership is doctors, they're probably hearing all sorts of, of buzzwords. If, if you're not a physician or you're not in medicine, you're probably like, what is he talking about? Uh, but the point is, is it uses fats in our body to produce these regulatory neurotransmitters known as endocannabinoids. Um, anandamide is the best known. There's another really abundant one known as 2-arachidinoylglycerol, 2-AG. Um, I've written some articles on the Kenigma about it. If you want to learn more, definitely check it out. And uh, those are just two of dozens. 
And there's receptors in our body that those molecules are produced to act on. Once again, helping to drive naturally in our body homeostasis, trying to balance out the GABA and the acetylcholine and the opioids and, and the glutamate and all of these other neurotransmitters. This is sort of trying to keep everything within, within the navigational beacons. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes what I like to do is I like to act like I was a person that was like the, the one that's saying, you know, the one that picks the arguments, right? Like I had a couple of guests that just destroyed me. I remember, and I, I loved them for it. Michael Levins and Arthur Mukherjee, they both, at the beginning, I started sweating. But if, <laughs> if, if I was, if, if they were talking to me, one thing that, you know, they could ask to that mesh or makeup, the key is to anyone listening that maybe didn't recognize those molecules, these molecules exist whether or not you ever take a cannabinoid absolutely in your life are exposed so the point is these molecules that have all of these purposes and habits and regulation and feel good they all exist independent of cannabinoid like you said it is something that is defined and defined due to the observation that cannabinoids has some serious and you know presumably often positive or productive impact on this constellation of Mm -hmm. uh network communication so anyone listening i don't want them to think it's like bro did you know that we actually have like a whole pathway that's going to cause homeostasis and homeostasis and they're all the things that are zen and if we're not taking cannabinoids we're not like centered you know activating it like you know that's not what you're saying or anyone is saying but we know this stuff has a purpose and function we know that you know arguably in 2023 and the younger generations it's more out of whack than ever because there's bigger problems with sleep uh, proper sleep, getting, you know, getting into deep REM, anxiety, like some of the I, things that really have to do with those very things, that the purpose of that entire network are compromised to a degree, again, arguably, that's never been here before. So the point is, we there has been recognition that taking cannabinoids can actually really help, uh, uh, I guess, amplify or potentiate a system designed to help those things. And now we're kind of seeing full circle how that makes sense and perhaps why the things that are associated with an out of whack disorder where it comes to like either like anxiety or, or, or medication refractory pain or, you know, hypersensitivity, you know, nausea, vomiting, especially if there's this, an emotional, you know, component to those on how a, and this is like, you might be saying like, this is the best thing, like, like to be able to, to, to articulate this way, how something stimulating that pathway that causes balance is a positive and productive thing and why it may be, you know, more abstract. Mm -hmm. And it can have negative implications as well. It's not inherently good. It's just, it's just there. Now, uh, I like to explain it this way. So everyone's heard of endorphins before. Most of us hear about it. That's, that's what makes exercise fun. It's, it's what's been ascribed to a runner's high. Now, if you look at the, the base of that word, endorphin, it's actually named aptly because we discovered well after we discovered morphine, which is known as an opioid because it comes from the opium poppy, we found that that opioid activates this system, the endorphin system, the endogenous morphine system. And it's the same thing. Cannabinoids are named because cannabis and THC in cannabis helped us discover them. But the system has been here the whole time and it has to function every day to keep you in balance, in check, regulates your body temperature, it regulates your appetite, your sleep-wake cycle, all of these things. And it's been here for 600 million years. We evolved 
all the way through. That's why dogs have it. That's why cats have it. We, they respond to CBD products. This is why um, horses can take CBD products and, and derive benefit because this system is in all of us and it's ancient. And it just so happens that we're now learning how to leverage this herb uh, to, to modulate it. And that herb is also the namesake, how, how the system got its name, but not where it came from. It came from evolution. No, that's a very salient point and one that, one that was very easy to understand. So thank you for making that, that distinction. You know, when you were saying that actually reminds me of something my wife told me way back when I was in med school that I haven't thought of since. And she was saying how there was this kind of divine beauty or encouragement about the fact that <clears throat> when a cat sometimes toys with a mouse, literally plays with it, kind of claws it and stuff until it dies. Uh, unfortunately, she was like, you know, you would think that it's a, 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 a cruel way or, or whatever for the mouse to like have end of life. But a lot of studies have shown that the endorphins produced and stimulated by that mouse actually has it pass, you know, or the cessation of life in a very palliated kind of like, you know, zen state, doesn't it? Like it's, it's a very potent response, especially to whatever reason. And, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Somebody wants to tell me on the comments, but that, that calling that nature of that actually stimulates that and makes it a, a peaceful go, if you will. And so, you know, whether you want to relate that to divine intervention or divine kind of preset mechanism, or just basically an amplification of something that makes sense. If you have an arrowhead in your foot, and you have to run away from a predator. <laughs> Obviously, you have to have some kind of you know placation, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. So, I think anyone listening has a pretty good understanding or appreciation for why and how things are getting ironed out on how they help with supportive things uh, when it relates to sleep and appetite, anxiety, possibly pain. Let's talk about its activity in cancer itself. The first thing I'm going to start with, which is a popular question, probably one of the most common I get is, what is the evidence of cannabinoid activity or THC in glioblastoma multiform or GBM specifically? It is a common question. Uh, and you can tell when you Google that question, you'll get lots of hits. Um, and, and while depending on where you go, when you type in that question, um, you might get a slightly different answer. Uh, but the general takeaway, believe it or not, is there's good reason and good science to believe that cannabinoids, whether it's THC, CBD, or others, actually have a positive effect on glioblastoma, um, either alone, but also in combination with the standard of care, which is often uh, radiation therapy or temozolomide or a combination of both, etc. So there is existing evidence that both THC and CBD can have positive impacts on GBM, which is pretty astounding because like, um, you know, this is a, a very difficult to treat disease. It does not respond to typical chemotherapeutic agents, um, which then starts to question, well, why would it work? Like, why, why, why would that happen? Well, it goes back to that endocannabinoid system. So glial cells, which is a, actually a term for multiple different brain cells, are generally covered in cannabinoid receptors, the, the, the satellite dishes that normally receive the endocannabinoid signal. There are, they are very abundant. In fact, I haven't mentioned this yet, but cannabinoid receptors, CB1, the one that uh, THC acts on to get us high, is actually the most abundant receptor in the brain. There are multiple studies that have confirmed this now. 
it is more abundant than any of the other receptors that we've talked about or that, that have been identified. This is everywhere in our nervous system because the nervous system needs to be in check and in balance. And if it's not, you're getting inappropriate signals. So you're perceiving the world wrong, whether that means pain, whether that means schizophrenia, whether that means, uh, well, we'll leave it there because those are like two good examples coming to my brain right this second. Uh, but the receptors that drive uh, the effects of cannabis are extremely abundant in brain cells, which is where glioblastoma uh, tends to be. So CB1, you said is the most common receptor. That it's basically like a kind of like a parent or higher up receptor that has a downstream cascade of different molecules that help uh, homeostasis and kind of like equilibrium or, or an equalizer of sorts for excitability or mm -hmm. neurologic dysfunction. Did I understand that correctly? You, you did. Um, the way the way it's best described, although this is. Um, so remember, we're talking about pharmacology. Pharmacology is inherently reductionist. We're trying to make Murder. something extraordinary complicated, life, into a into something uh, digestible, understandable, and predictable. So what the, the best way to describe this is most uh, neurological signaling happens in one direction. I send the signal to the brain. The brain sends it back down. So that is called there's there's two neurons talking to each other one is the presynaptic neuron and one is the postsynaptic mm -hmm. neuron this presynaptic typically sends a message to this one and we continue the trajectory downwards where the cannabinoid receptor tends to live is up here upstream so the signaling which is normally downstream for cannabinoids is typically upstream it's called retrograde signaling and yeah. this is once again to tell the sending neuron hey Hey, we got the message. Turn down the volume. You don't need to keep shouting. We hear you. And, and so that's how it maintains homeostasis in the nervous system. Um, of course, this only applies to nervous cells, and there's a, there's a lot of cells in the body. But that is the best way to think about it is this is when retrograde why, signaling. Yeah, and that's why like the, basically another term we use is negative feedback, which means like, yo, like we're good. Chill out. Is that the theory behind the pain control, especially stubborn obstinate pain that doesn't respond sometimes to opiates is that why is that relation of possibly saying hey we're we're understand we're sensing this discomfort we're aware that you're having it and it kind of down regulates the sensation of something that's problematic i think that's a that's a good way to think of it cannabinoids have multiple mechanisms but in the, their primary role in pain that is that is a pretty big one uh cannabinoids do have a well-established agreed upon benefit in chronic pain their role in, in cancer-induced pain is a little more um, less agreed upon, is what I should say. Patients say that it helps. Um, the science says maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. Uh, but but definitely we have, that's a good way to think about it, is it's, is it's giving this negative feedback, telling the body to stop dumping these pain molecules and instead to sort of tighten up and, and, and chill out, as you mentioned. Um, so that's that's one way that the endocannabinoid system is serving as that homeostatic regulator. And then you were saying, so now how it applies to GBM, before I had, had asked about CB1, that, you know, you basically are saying, to catch people up in case we went on a tangent, is that's why GBM, when it's so stubborn and so difficult and so challenging, we know that systemic treatments in general don't have, like, they can be a challenge to get to the central nervous system. It's called the blood-brain barrier, a sanctuary sometimes that protects things. Our drugs have gotten better to getting there, but that is just one of many reasons that GBM is challenging. But to your point, 
unlike some of the other cancer types, these are glial cells. These are things that we've already established in the beginning of this podcast that cannabinoid and endocannabinoid system has to do with CNS, you know, molecules and signaling and pathways. And GBM is literally stuck like ink in that entire mm-hmm. um, uh, web or architecture of something that has all that signaling uh, taking place. And your next point was what that it does. And then for that reason, it does have some kind of potentially some kind of like uh, actual effect on the on the growth of said glial cells themselves. Absolutely. So CB1 is particularly involved in the proliferation of cells or telling cells to apoptose. So the endocannabinoid system regulates whether a cell should divide or whether it needs to to sort of self-destruct. So CB1 is incredibly involved in this process. But I want to point out that, you know, um, CB1 is only part of the picture. And especially when we talk about glial cells, which are also part of the immune system, the astrocytes and the microglial cells are, are a lot like um, immune cells of our brain. We talked about CB1, this receptor that's all over our neurons. Well, CB2, cannabinoid receptor 2, which THC also strongly activates, CB2 is one of the most abundant, one of, not necessarily the most, receptors on our immune cells. So there is an incredible role of the endocannabinoid system in regulating immune function and autoimmune conditions and whatnot. And we know that the immune system is integrally involved with how cancer develops, how it spreads. Um, Oftentimes, cancer is um, tricking our immune system to do its dirty work for it, bringing in cells that promote the growth of new uh, blood vessels, promote the the, invasion of these cells into different forms. And once again, when we activate the CB2 receptor, we see a quelling of this immune response, and we see sort of a disabling of some of cancer's mechanisms by which it it can be so aggressive. Wow. Okay. (laughs) That is super interesting and nothing I'd come up or come across before. So anyone listening, they might say, wait a second, Sanjay, you've had many guests talking about immune escape and that you're using immune therapy and CAR T therapy and basically using immune uh, cells, specific types to either attack or be permitted to attack cancers. I don't know, unless it was way back when with uh, Keith Flaherty with melanoma, I believe uh, he was at Harvard or Hopkins, where we actually talked with, actually we had the UPenn uh, gentleman as well talk about it. What you're talking about is the hijacking of immune cells to protect your uh, environment so that you can fester as a cancer. That is a very real thing that we haven't touched on in a long time in this podcast. Remember, you could have areas where you can use your immune system to function as a deterrent the same way as somebody grabs a hostage and that way they're not shot at because you're not going to shoot. You have a lot of these cells have, uh, even if it's not immune cells, but things that bring in other things like fibroblasts that can actually kind of disguise and hide those things. And so CB2, you're saying, is still a negative feedback kind of queller, like calming down but not in the capacity necessarily. I'm, I'm sure in some ways it could be, but but not in the capacity of saying the tumor, the immune system against tumor kill, but in this case, dissolve away the immune system that is somehow insulating or protecting it from getting killed by other immune things, other immune cells. People forget that we have all kinds of different kinds. That is very, very interesting. And one of the cells 
And one of the cancers everyone thinks about when it comes to immunity uh, and hiding is pancreatic. So I have to ask, is there some data based on that theory on CB2 and, and immune cell uh, protection? Is there data with cannabinoids in pancreatic cancer? There are. Interestingly, and, and you know, look, if THC was a cure for cancer, we'd have people cured with cancer all over because we got people consuming, again, one of the most widely used substances. So I don't want to overstate sort of Bro, sure. THC. However, there have been numerous experimental models using synthetic cannabinoids. So sort of using THC as, a, as the base structure and manipulating it and changing it that have shown tremendous benefit in pancreatic cancer. And once again, the endocannabinoid system, we've only talked about CB1, CB2. There's like a whole umbrella of potential receptors, but those are the two we focus on because those are the ones that THC activates. Um, and so pancreatic cancer has been shown to respond quite well to numerous synthetic cannabinoids in vitro in those test tubes. Um, those have not really been uh, hashed out in, in real life. Um, but I can speak from personal experience. I've had numerous patients um, that I have, I have helped with pancreatic cancer, not to cure their cancer. This is an incredibly challenging uh, you know, cancer diagnosis, as you know. But to help with appetite, which pancreatic patients have an extreme difficulty eating, to help with pain associated with that. In fact, my sort of come to cannabis moment, which was in, in pharmacy school, was helping my girlfriend at the time. Her grandmother was passing away of pancreatic cancer. And um, she was a child of the, the 50s uh, and, and had remembered in the 70s what it was like uh, and, and had actually requested uh, a cake. So uh, this is sort of what set the seed for me to be interested in this topic. As I'm in pharmacy school, I might have access to some marijuana at that time. Uh, and I decided to make a, a cake for, for granny and we, uh, we, the family, had the most incredible final two days with this woman, where instead of being, you know, super sedated on lorazepam and morphine and unable to engage with the family, she uh, ate a full meal, well, full be for, for an elderly, you know, um, hospice patient. Uh, she called her, her children and grandchildren, was able to speak on the phone with them only a few days before she passed away all with the help of this of cannabis to help deal with the pain and deal with the the um, sort of mental impacts of all this. And it was absolutely beautiful. I took that, kind of put it in my pocket, put it on the back burner and just continued my career um, knowing that cannabis is medicine, but you know, we are where we are. And then a few years ago, I had the opportunity um, a bit serendipitously to go back to school and get my master's degree in the topic. But it was pancreatic cancer and the utility, not to treat the cancer, to treat the symptoms of cancer that led me down this whole path and, and my passion for this herb. That is a beautiful story. You know, I had a, I have a mentor that told me not too long ago, um, you know, when things really changed for him, he was, was by most people's definition, super successful before 50, but, but he considers his second life after 50. And he said, I... I just learned to listen to the universe, like listen to the world and that there's, he's like, look, I'm a business guy. I'm an entrepreneur. I've always been savvy, like a shark about this, that he's like, it sounds almost wild and, and, you know, like fields of, of folly, but he's like the universe positions us and feeds us and gives us these, you know, capacities to do our the most and, the, and, and, and most productively put it back out in the universe. I think in the same case, serendipitously i would not be talking with you and getting your insights if it wasn't for social media so anyone listening to this i don't know what's making me say this but 
the answers can become clear when you just listen and observe. Like they're just all, you know, around us, I believe. And that is completely a non-medical thing. But um, but I had to share that. And then yeah. again, this universe telling me to share that. So I hope it means something. When you keep going, when you keep listening and you keep you keep that's the, following that's the thing, your you heart. Keep listening. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like on the, hey. when you say, what do I, what do I, what do I want? What do I get? How do I do this? You stop listening because now you're putting the stress on yourself and you're not using the aid of like basically the very same atoms and, and molecules that you're constituted by, which are the same carbon and hydrogen atoms as the universe. And you believe at all that there is a harmony. The more we shut off and repel and dig inward, uh, the less fluid we are with continuity. In the term opinion. that I oh, like anyway. for this uh, is, is synchronicity. And, and I think yes. that, that we, could, we could point that out as we, we found ourselves synced up and, and able to have this conversation. And I hope it helps one or more people uh, listening to this find you know that that use that that application for cannabis that they've always been turned off to it, it is not a miracle but it is it has a tremendous amount of utility across cancer and many other conditions and it's been wrongly stigmatized it, it's really unfortunate that we haven't been able to leverage this medicine um that has so long been part of of what i would call the pharmacopoeia the the book of medicines that we can use um, history lesson because I love this this little history lesson. So going back to the first pharmacopoeia, so the first book of medicine ever documented was written down around 100 years BC, but it was actually shared via what's known as oral tradition throughout China since 3500 BCE. So now we're talking about 5,500 years. In the first book that was written down by a demigod, so a mythological uh, Chinese emperor known as Shen Neng, Cannabis um, was listed in the book of medicines that we should take regularly. Now, cannabis at that time probably wasn't the marijuana of today, I will point out. Uh, We have bred that plant, but forever this has been medicine. We lost sight of it, and now it's coming back. We're in a bit of a renaissance talking about it, um, and, and I'm happy to be part of that renaissance. I love that, and I'm happy to have you here. I'm also not done with you if you still have 10 more minutes. I <laughs> no, you, you're good. I'm not going anywhere till work at yeah. 9 o'clock. No, I love that. So one of my favorite you know, people that I read a lot on, I studied philosophy in undergrad, was Aristotle. Did Aristotle speak on it? It seemed like he had his hand on everything. I, it's okay if the answer's <laughs> I don't know of any any uh, Great. Time, any, any information from Aristotle on, on uh, cannabis, but I do know... Uh, for fact that it was well known that cannabis was medicine in in ancient Greece, um, including uh, Pliny the Elder had had alluded to it. Uh, I believe, not Socrates, one of the famous physicians. What's another one? Uh, he had he had alluded to it and its use Hippocrates. for. Socrates. Uh, no, that doesn't Plato. sound right either. The, the point is, is there were numerous uh, philosophers and, and doctors of that time, which were almost the same profession uh, yeah. at that time. Oh, I mean, teachers, that's a reasonable doctor, you know. So I have to ask. So, you know, yeah, the, you know, it's been around forever, as you said, Indian culture as well. So um, when time. you talked about cancer pain, I think one of the reasons it's more equivocal is because there are so many different, uh, you know, reasons for cancer pain, right? Like if you have a bone met, it's going to be fracture-like, you know, pain versus the treatments you're getting that causes neuropathy talking about this negative feedback loop and kind of queller i just love that word i don't even know if queller is a word you said quelling in the adverb form which is probably i like it queller queller let's do that um then what about neuropathy when it comes to uh you know toxicities from chemotherapy specifically taxol and 
and paclitaxel and, and maybe cisplatin. Is there any evidence where THC or cannabinoids can help with that neuropathy? Great question. So uh, there is anecdotal evidence by, reported by patients that, that they derive. And then there is preclinical evidence, actually in particular related to cannabidiol, um, CBD, uh, that actually suggests that CBD could help reduce the incidence of uh, chemo-induced neuropathies. Um, but that still hasn't been hashed out in human clinical trials. Okay, good to know. So you had mentioned earlier, you know, in some instances, and this is the case for anything even potentially good when it comes to medications, over-the-counter, herbal supplements, whatever, that it could also be potentially harmful. And I, you know, usually in those circumstances, like St. John's wort and some other things, they are, uh, it's the case because they influence the metabolism. So if you have you know, a certain number of chefs in the kitchen, imagine that obviously if you overburden with it, then the metabolism of the task at hand will be slowed down and therefore you have extra amount of that thing mm -hmm. uh, circulating, not as fast uh, broken down as it would have otherwise. Other things are um, things that actually increase or speed up the activity and then therefore it ends up making sub-therapeutic levels. Outside of that or, or within it for that matter, is that the capacity you meant where cannabinoids could potentially be harmful in certain, you know, settings, or is it more complicated than that? What exactly were you talking about? Totally. Big topic, right? Side effects of cannabis have given, you know, I, when we, I lecture, I'm a professor at UCI, we do a two credit elective for pharmacists in cannabis pharmacology. Adverse effects gets an entire lecture. So we won't have time to cover that, that whole topic. However, what you first talked about was drug-drug interactions caused by inhibition or induction of enzymes, particularly in the liver, but technically all over the, all over the body. The answer is yes, cannabis can do that. And more specifically, CBD is a well-known inhibitor of numerous enzymes. Now, that is not inherently bad. In fact, in some cases, that could mean you take less of another medicine and get the same effect. So inhibition is not inherently bad. However, Let's imagine that you're exposing me to highly toxic chemotherapeutic agents, which are also metabolized by that same enzyme. Now I'm going to get supra-therapeutic levels, too much of that drug, and I can have side effects from that. And we've seen that. In fact, there's a f famous case report, probably not famous outside of my world, but a patient who was chronically taking a drug called meloxicam, an NSAID similar to ibuprofen, and they were on it for a long time, added in CBD at pretty high doses, and what happened is, is they got a toxic effect from that meloxicam. Prostaglandins. You had mentioned that. Is that why? Is that part? Is that how it was associated? Uh, no, no. It's probably through meloxicam metabolism. Meloxicam levels got too high, and what oh, happened gotcha. is, is that induced Steven Johnson syndrome, which is why, uh, if you're familiar with this, it's really horrible um, sort of flare of ulcers in the eyes and in the mouth. Really, really serious um, condition that meloxicam can do, but rarely. But when combined with CBD, it, it, it could be even more likely. So cannabinoids in that respect, with, with, as it relates to enzyme inhibition, are not harmless. Um, but, but it isn't inherently bad. We can, we can leverage that effect, too, if we're thoughtful about it and we get good data. Now, For someone using CBD, is there a calculator or resource they could go in and punch in? Or can I do it on MDCalc or any of these other things that I use as, as you know? interaction checkers, which by the way, anyone that's listening, if you or a loved one is on, you know, four more medications, it's always a good idea. This is not medical advice. 
but to just make sure that you know there's interactions and you're not getting you mm-hmm. know therapy pharmacist supra yeah are the, is there a calculator for cbd specifically that can identify no okay no, well, i i, I wish i could tell list. you there was uh, okay. and the, in fact, these are extremely challenging questions that have not yet been hashed out by the medical community. Um, you know, partially because those interactions and the science that underpins them are part of the drug approval process. And remember, these drugs are not really approved. As it relates to CBD, you can use these interaction checkers and you can um, check the FDA approved product called cannab- uh, Epidiolex or Cannabidiol. And you can try oh. to try to put it together. Same thing with THC. You can put in Marinol, T- Dronabinol into that checker, and that'll show you the THC interactions. Um, but it, we're still very limited with those tools. I talked briefly about CBD, the sort of adverse effects. It's almost always related to metabolism, and there might be a little bit of evidence that it's hard on the liver in general, increasing liver function tests at high doses. Flipping to THC, what we actually see is very minimal um, problems associated with those enzymes that we just mentioned. So different problems than than CBD. Can you explain the difference real quick? THC and CBD? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Uh, so both cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, they both come from the cannabis plant. Interestingly enough, they all come from the same precursor molecule as well. It's called CBG. So CBG, depending on the genetics of that plant, is either then turned into THC or turned into CBD. THC and CBD are known as isomers. They're made of exactly the same stuff, the same amount of carbons, hydrogens, and oxygens, but they are structurally different. THC is made of three rings, which makes it a pretty rigid molecule and it can't bend. And CBD is only two rings connected by one singular little connector. And that means that it can function and twist and, and go all around, which is why it inhibits so many of these enzymes, as opposed to THC, which behaves much more predictably in the body and has a very specific pharmacologic effect. CBD is like people take it. They don't know if they feel it. They think they does something. They're not sure. Whereas THC, it, you know, it causes a, a high. So well, why aren't they sure with CBD? Uh, well, simply put, because it's... Um, because it's so bendy, it can act all over the body in a ton of different receptors and channels and pathways that we, we're still trying to, to figure out. So THC, we can generally put it into uh, two, two mechanisms. It activates CB1, activates CB2. That's, again, a bit reductionist, but pretty generally, that's the, that's the conversation. With CBD, we have at least 60 different ways that it might be working in the body. And those ways depend on the concentration that we took, your specific genetic disposition, and the disease state in which you're currently dealing with, because your body's going to change to that, and then CBD might have a different effect in somebody who's afflicted with a condition as opposed to someone who's not. It's like a pocket knife. It's malleable. It's like a flex position. And, you know, people are something you're an idiot, but like, you know, on, it's a flex position on fantasy football or, or, or whatever, where you can just go into different positions. Right. Like it's 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 like Taysom Hill for the New Orleans Saints. That's a pitch for my New Orleans. So so it it's just more versatile. It's more, I guess, you know, it's confirmation can change. They're both metabolized by the liver though, and they both come from plant. Or is only C B D metabolized or they both are and C B D actually like affects more things in the liver again because it can kind of flex around. Bingo. That and C B D often is taken in significantly larger doses. 
five milligrams of CBD is is quite small. Five milligrams of THC, if you're a novice THC user, will get you pretty toasty. And so the amount needed to cause the effect and the amount typically taken is a big factor. But you were right too, it's bendy. So in pharmacology, this is called selectivity. So THC is highly selective for CB1 and CB2 receptors. CBD is not, it doesn't really care. It'll sort of play with whoever comes to the playground with it. And so because of that, it's highly variable response among patients. Uh, and and we see that that mixed pharmacology. They both come from plants. Like absolutely, both are naturally created in the cannabis plant. Um, and and once again, it's driven by the genetics of that plant. So um, you know, modern marijuana, you know, varieties. Remember, this is a flower, and and so certain flowers like roses, some sort roses are red, some are yellow, some are different. And it's the genetics of that flower that dictate whether you have THC, CBD, or believe it or not, you can get both. You can get one flower that produces one of one, one of each. And so uh, it's not strictly limited to what we call type one, high THC strains, or type three, which is high CBD strains. There's a whole in between that can have mixed ratios of both these molecules in the very same plant. It's just polymorphisms. Those- they're polymorphisms. Yep. Mm, yeah, like, or you know. ver- varieties. Uh, you, we can call it polymorphisms, but genetic diversity and uh, g- the genetic diversity of cannabis is very robust. And there's a lot of different ways that the plant can present, whether we're growing it for fiber or whether we're growing it for the drugs, which means flower. Um, there's a there's a bunch of different ways it can present. And uh, it's but they absolutely are both produced within within the cannabis plant. And they can literally be produced side by side in in the same plant. So outside of metabolism, on the conversation of some data that may suggest it's harmful, outside of metabolism and kind of swinging what happens to the therapeutic concentrations or, or lack thereof of other things you're receiving, is there any data that somewhat suggests that it actually somehow potentiates or catalyzes cancer growth outside of its influence on treatments. I think what you're asking me is, are there instances where cannabis has made cancer worse? Correct. Outside of its influence on cancer therapies on a metabolic level, but just does it feed the cancer, you know, or or outcomes be worse just as a as a blanket? So uh, Dedi Miri out of Israel, and Israel is one of the world leading uh, countries in cannabis research. Dedi Miri has done extensive research into the effects of specific, what's called a strain or, or varieties of cannabis and their effect on specific strains or varieties of cancer. And he's done extremely, um, yeah, complicated, but advanced studies looking at all these different types, let's say they try 20 different types of cannabis and they apply it to one type of cancer and they look what each one of those does. And what they find is some of them do nothing. Some of them work okay. Some of them appear to be, you know, a cure for that cancer. And there are rare occasions where a variety can worsen uh, these, these cancers. Now, remember, we're talking about test tube studies. So it's really hard to extrapolate that to people. There's no inhuman examples or, or um, yeah, we don't have that evidence in people, but there is preclinical evidence that in rare cases, a, a, a type of cannabis could potentially worsen certain types of cancer. It's not that easy, though, because there's 
unlimited varieties of cancer and unlimited varieties or or near that of cannabis so is there any is there any is there any specific cancer that seemed to pop up more than others or it's okay if the answer is no so just kind of looking at the at the big data that we've looked at, you know, so there, there's been a lot of focus on cannabis is bad. In fact, the, the research looking at the harms of cannabis is about 100 times more investigated than the benefits of cancer. Um, it might even be more disparate than that, but it is extreme how much money the government and um, NIDA has spent looking at the harms versus the potential benefits. But when we look at the, the, big, the big data looking at harms of cannabis, there appears to be a couple instances where cannabis or marijuana use might be slightly or loosely correlated with an increased risk of cancer. Um, the ones that come to mind are um, head, neck, and throat cancers appear to be, again, weak evidence, but there is maybe this slight correlation between cannabis use and those cancers. Um, why we don't fully understand. Maybe because they're smoking it and, and obviously kind of irritant. Uh... Absolutely. That is has been in the algorithm. There's tar in cannabis smoke. There is the bad stuff that's in tobacco smoke, also in cannabis smoke. So that could be contributing. Uh, my, you know, we'll call it a working theory, not, not necessarily science-based, is we know that uh, HPV um, is one of the primary drivers of, of mouth and throat cancer. And we know that uh, that's a virus and it has to do with the immune system. And we know that THC acts on the immune system. So it may just allow that that sort of progress to happen uh, more more rapidly. There's also a slight association with um, like uh, male germ cells, uh, can- types of cancer. And then um, one example that comes to mind, too, is we saw um, patients who were getting treated with immunotherapy and their colorectal cancer, this is new, this is like 2022, 2023 data, patients who were getting an immune therapy, and I, I don't recall which one, who were also trying cannabis, who had poorer outcomes. And so that could be interference with the immunotherapy, or it could be related to, um, well, that's probably what it's related to. Yeah, or, or possibly because of, you know, the GI component, because we do use immune therapy in a lot of different cancer types. Um Okay. Can it cause cancer? Great question. So especially this is the big concern. You're smoking anything. It's got to cause cancer, right? We've done articles on the Kenigma at this. If you're curious and you want to learn more, definitely check it out. They're well cited and reviewed by yours truly. At the Kenigma, our whole shtick is we're taking um, these questions that are common on Google. We're having them answered by our writers. And then just like WebMD did for all of that, we WebMD'd weed. And now we have a pharmacist or a PhD or a physician reviewing that article for accuracy and clarity. Um, You can find an article on this topic on the website. But the short answer is particularly as it relates to lung cancer. Even though cannabis smoke contains more tar and just as many of the nasty little particles that come in smoke, the answer is so far no. There is no certifiable evidence that cannabis is causing lung cancer if you don't also smoke tobacco. Now, caveat, cannabis users are about eight times more likely to be nicotine abusers than non-cannabis users, and that's probably from some cross-reactivity between those two systems, as well as, hey, I smoke this, I smoke that, whatever. So, in cannabis-only users, there's been no increase in, in cancer rates um, as compared to the control groups. Um, and that's in stark contrast than nicotine users, which we know is 
highly associated causative for for lung cancer and well well tobacco i mean cigarette tobacco, tobacco. uh yeah, yeah tobacco I, vaping, you know it's not quite as it's not quite but that's a that's a really good point um so so this when i explain it in the article and the best way i like to to kind of put this out there is it has to do with what the endocannabinoid system does in the body versus what nicotine does so when you look at what cannabinoids do in a test tube they tend just like we're talking about with cancer to tell cells to turn themselves off and to die apoptose this is really common well-established effect of synthetic and phytocannabinoids we this is a this is known it's probably one of the reasons it might benefit certain types of cancer that is very different than nicotine which is actually known to to induce proliferation of cells it tells cells hey you should turn into two cells you should you should make a make another one of you and that is the actual uh, cellular effect of nicotine. So in the context of exposing my lungs to the nasty stuff that is smoke, whether it's cannabis or, or tobacco, the big difference is when the body, the lungs are exposed to the cannabinoids, they have a tendency to, oh, you're damaged, go, you know, you know, die. As opposed to, oh, you're damaged with, with tobacco smoke. And it says, oh, you should divide. And then that's where the cancer starts to sort of seed and come from. So this is so the, the big reason. So that you should die trigger. What about, does that apply if you eat it, if it's inedible? Well, we're specifically or, talking sure. about the lungs right now. But yes, that is a generalized, although not always true, a generalized effect of cannabinoids. And the same is true of nicotine. Whether the same reason you get mouth cancer right. from, from chewing tobacco or throat cancer, even if you're not smoking. You're talking about more of a topical, like an actual touching exposure because like the THC and cannabinoid like that pardon me if I'm wrong but that all of that occurs once it's in the blood it's it's effect like whether it's whether it goes through the blood through inhalation or consumption the that pharmacologic stimulation is happening only when it's correct like in the blood. well it's moved into the cell so THC is taken inside of the cell or or it acts on the outside of the cell but in both cases, whether inhaled or not, THC moves into the blood, is attached right. to plasma proteins, and moves throughout the body and acts on different cells and different organs. Um, right. And so and then you get the effects like on your CNS and all that once it's gotten there. So correct. you said the tar was more in in uh, in marijuana, but yet did not have this you know nearly without question the same consequences tobacco smoke. I always heard hookah is worse than tobacco smoke. Is it in the same capacity? Do you know, like hookah tobacco? Yeah, I mean, look, shisha, which is hookah tobacco, is tobacco mixed with sweeteners and flavorants and all sorts of of, uh, other stuff. And additionally, when we take hookah smoke, we take more volume of of the smoke and we are able to take it deeper into our lungs because of the way we deliver it. Um... So I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if there's been tremendous uh, research on sort of cancer rates between the two. We know that that uh, shisha contains nicotine and it is indeed smoke. Therefore, we're still going to have this concern for cancer inducing properties. Can or is there data to support or suggest, and if so, in which tumor types, that cannabinoids can help prevent certain types of cancer? Prevent. I have never seen any data showing that that cancer could be prevented. Uh, that's a challenging, uh, challenging study to do because there are so many factors involved in the development of cancer. 
Um, but taking what we know about the apoptotic effects, this induction of apoptosis, um, it it doesn't feel super far-fetched, but I know of no data that suggests that. That shows that. Because I have heard this suggestion that nicotine, and I think it was looked into, I had a friend that actually vapes, though I sent I was looking for any reason to justify it. And, you know, he's a doctor and pretty, pretty intelligent. He was like, you know, there's some neurocognitive protection potentially, like based on that. So I didn't know if there was a similar potentially protective or prophylactic, um, you know, assessment formal that that may apply. But uh, not around cancer that I know of. But I think that that if you looked at other conditions, um, even even some data coming out around coronavirus and the severity of ARDS and inflammatory conditions, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw these protective effects. Uh, but but around cancer specifically, I'm not aware of any right. any data. So, if you could, can you tell us? And I know it's not necessarily um, the same thing at all. But <laughs> what is kratom? Mm, okay, you you've noticed that I'm a plant medicine guy, and you're interested in, yeah, in leveraging. Let me know that I have a patient that swears by kratom. Kratom, and I looked it up, and I was like, okay, it works on me. It seems like more or less an opiate. Uh, agonist or opiate, you know, in the same capacity that opiates work to downregulate pain, it seems like it's in the same way. And I'm like, well, then how is this not a Schedule Two drug? And is that a state a Schedule One in the same sense of like highly addictive and also potentially analgesic? Um, you know, I guess I guess what's your 90 second, you know, take yeah. on that? So kratom is a uh, leafy bush like tree that grows in Southeast Asia. And inside of the leaves of this plant, there are opioid and opioid-like molecules. And there's a couple of them, but metranginine, I believe, is the, is the active ingredient that activates the opioid receptor. This is just another great example of how plants have always been medicine, and ancient wisdom sort of gets lost and not translated into modern medicine. It's true that kratom has abuse potential. You can become addicted to kratom. In a similar way, you can become addicted to THC in marijuana. Of course, the, the opioids found in Kratom are in lower concentrations and less potent than the ones that have been developed by pharmaceutical companies like oxycodone, fentanyl, etc. So there is an opioid in the, uh, the plant, but just like cannabis, Kratom is not one thing. It's not just that opioid. It has numerous molecules in it that can help sort of balance out the total effect profile. And there are a lot of individuals who find themselves addicted to prescription opioids or to illicitly manufactured fentanyl who find Kratom to be extremely helpful to them, both dealing with maybe their their underlying pain disorder, but also with their opioid use disorder. And so, uh, in summary, uh, the ground-up leaves of a South uh, Southern Asian plant that contains opioid-like molecules that does carry abuse potential, but has also been used by people to help come off of opioids or deal with their other uh, health issues. And so it's not it's not in it's not part of the endocannabinoid system. Nope. Uh, but I would point out that the endogenous uh, opioid system, the the endorphin system, is closely connected to this this homeostatic regulatory system. And we know that they could even be uh, synergistically combined. But no, it does not act on the endogenous cannabinoid system. It acts mostly on the glutamate system and on the opioid system. Kratom. Understood. Thank you. That was very helpful. I have been told, because I'm thinking about two patients specifically that were completely off of narcotics, like written prescriptions because of Kratom. And I've heard the same thing about 
cannabinoids? And mm-hmm. I'm sure the answer is yes. And it's almost insulting to ask a pharmacologist, but they insist, they insist that the, that whatever they're inhaling, you know, when it comes to marijuana, especially they're like, or THC, they're like, no, this one's an opera. This one's like for focus, like Adderall. Then this one's like to help me sleep, just like Trazodone. And like, and they're just, they're like, it is just figured out to a science on, which makes sense to a degree because it's the receptors and profile. And you already said that there's a spectrum of, of, you know, quote unquote colors to what is constituted by uh cannabinoid in the plants and what receptors. Is it true that these things that maybe if you're going to a legitimate place that they have been studied on the specific receptors that are affiliated with good sleep or attention or focus or pain and these other things? Shortly, so, no. Uh, uh, so play. look, what your patients are experiencing and what they're describing, I'm not going to dismiss that because we know there is a pharmacologic complexity to the plant. There's, yes, the cannabinoids, but also in that plant, something called terpenoids, the essential oil of plants. And we know that essential oils have true pharmacologic effects. There's a uh, European-approved product made of lavender oil that's used for anxiety, and it's been compared head-to-head to um, citalopram and SSRI, and it, and it performed better. There are uh, peppermint oil that you may even give to your patients in, in, um, in the hospital that helps with an irritable bowel syndrome. So Ascent, essential oils, the the terpenes found in plants, also have a pharmacologic effect. And the colors, quote, quote unquote, that cannabis can come in can sometimes be better attuned to one effect than the other. Some patients report the orange one makes them awake, and some people say that the blue one makes them tired. However, it has not been properly hashed out. It is not as well studied or well established as the industry has sold it to the average consumer. So there is a lot of misinformation on the internet about cannabis. That's why we have the Conigma and to try to help help tease some of this apart. Um, there are also an agreed upon, especially by regular users, differences in different varieties, but it has not been well established. So when a patient says, this does this, I would I would take the caveat for you. Right, because they work on CB1 and CB2 kind of mostly like, and other receptors more or less like uniformly. Like it's not so specific. It's like, oh no, it avoids one and two and this one does four and that's sleep and seven <laughs> is, is is like, you know, a focus thing. THC does. Activate CB1 and CB2 receptors sort of irregardless. So, you, you know, THC and the dose are the two primary drivers around the primary effects of marijuana. But there's these nuanced, more subtle effects, particularly in experienced users, where these essential oils may be driving someone more towards a sleepy effect versus an awake effect, or more towards pain control versus more towards anxiety. Um, and But any statement or claim that, that they have figured it out, or the marketing claims on the products that literally say, this one's for sleep, this one's for anxiety... These are overstated generalizations, and and it's really patient-specific at this time. And it's going to take a lot of work, both genetic evaluation um, and what's called metabolomic evaluation of the plant, like what is in this, to try to put the whole picture together. I'm sorry I'm, I'm squeezing you for everything that I can, but, you know, one quick question I have is I've had patients that have cholangiocarcinoma or especially really hepatocellular carcinoma from liver injury and whether it was, you know, alcohol abuse at a, at a, at a previous time, um, that every now and then, this is pure anecdotal. I mean, to make that very clear, 
But when I see an unexplained improvement in liver enzymes, because a lot of times with liver cancer and cholangios, the problem isn't that it's necessarily spread everywhere. It's just that you have total uh, uh, takeover of the good hepatic tissue. And then if it's already cirrhotic or scarred, that it's not going to be able to perform its duties as well. So, you know, something that's a reason for mortality people are trying to preserve. All that to say, they'll kind of give me a look. And this is more recent in the last couple of weeks. And I'll say, I've been taking milk thistle. Um, now, I know there's a lot of data evidence. And it's okay if you get, you know, if, if that's a little outside of the realm. Do you know if milk thistle has uh, data-driven science to help liver disease? There's a little bit out there. There's some preclinical work that says that this may be uh, supportive for our liver. Um, hepatoprotectors. I know people swear by hangovers that it helps that as well. I'm not an expert in milk thistle, and I would need to go evaluate the the literature, but I have definitely heard it, um, and it, it is feasible that things that are antioxidant um, that that could protect our liver can do that. Um, more focused on you know my area of expertise, we know that the endocannabinoid system is involved in numerous uh, hepatocellular disorders, including. Uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We know the endocannabinoid system is it has, plays a protective role. Activating the CB1 receptor actually can help prevent some of the the uh, scarring and, and damage to the hepatocytes. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we found that milk thistle does have a benefit. Here's what I've learned as someone who practices in Western medicine. I live in this world of, of hospital-based, evidence-based practice. There's a lot of potential benefit from substances outside of the FDA approved model. But you can't patent milk thistle. And because you can't patent milk thistle, the study doesn't get done in the properly way the proper way for physicians to, you know, per our training or, or your training and my similar training in the pharmacy world, to take that with with the credibility needed to pursue it and believe it. And because of that, we, we are a little stifled in Western medicine, um, as opposed to Eastern medicine, who doesn't hesitate to throw together eight or 10 herbs in, in be it India or China, uh, and, and, you know, give it for a specific condition in a specific patient. And maybe that's milk thistle and cannabinoids and kratom all mixed together uh, in a special blend. We see this pretty regularly in Eastern medicine. Well, I hope that something will be improved too with the advent of we've understood we've understood polymorphisms and SNPs. So all the idiosyncrasies that relate to how you metabolize things, do you metabolize it well, do you not? We know it's not uniform across all humans. And so that's one big thing. And so when you're talking about something that has multiple receptors like C B D, uh, and it's a little flex position, it's like it's gonna matter. We know there's relevance based on my genetics, which my dad's from New Delhi and Punjabi. And my mom is from really East India, you know, in a place called Assam, you know, that borders kind of Eastern Asia to a degree. We know that's going to behave differently than you, presumably, at least. Yeah. Um, well established. So, right. And that's why when they're like, it's not clear, it's not clear. It's because we've done these very, you know, large, again, obtuse kind of generalizations when now we can really whittle it down to say, okay, but what is your profile? What is, what is, what are the receptors you carry? How are you going to metabolize it? That's number one. And then number two, I think AI learning will help a lot because when you have those idiosyncrasies and nuances that obviously you're going to confound things if they behave differently and hit different things on on two different people, even though they're in the same study, I think that will help 
things uh, to a large degree. Um, yeah. What, if anything, do you know about this thought on marijuana use or cannabinoids in general, but maybe specifically marijuana? And I've read something about it increasing circulating hormone levels, uh, potentially on estrogen, which could, there's a concern in breast cancer and ERPR positive breast cancers. And then I heard something else. I think it decreases testosterone. And basically I'm asking this for hormone positive breast cancers, either in survivorship or, or cause of cancer or during treatment for hormone positive, as well as in prostate cancer, where we are limiting the amount of testosterone. What is the kind of takeaway, if any, when marijuana relates to hormone positive disease? You know, it, really hard to to differentiate. So I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is, um, yeah, I've seen some studies suggesting, oh, this could be a problem in hormone positive, but I've also seen some evidence that when combined with tamoxifen, that it may actually improve results. So so mixed mixed results so far in that. Same thing around testosterone levels. It actually, uh, acute use tends to be different than chronic use. So acutely, it appears that THC might increase testosterone, but chronically, it appears to maybe decrease testosterone. But it does absolutely touch both both those hormones, your cortisol levels, and, and so many more. Because once again, this is a, is a master homeostatic system. It's overseeing the function throughout the entire body. It's not limited to an organ system like we think the GI tract or the skin or, or the, um, the brain itself. The endocannabinoid system is in almost every cell type playing different roles and, and doing um, sort of its own micro environment, which uh, in, in sort of regulating that, that micro environment for what the body needs at that time in that specific organ. So when you stub your toes, the endocannabinoid system of that toe is going to be doing different things than the other foot. And so uh, because these are, it's sort of a uh, focused system and, and uh, one that's all throughout the body, we see a, a tremendous amount of effects. There is no agreement on the uh, sort of benefit or, or net negative on any of the things that you just asked me about. Um, but there are, those are legitimate concerns. And so what I would challenge providers who might be listening to this show um, and and t- chiming along, not sure what to do with the information, right? Because we as as healthcare providers really want everything black and white. That's not what we have here. What we have here is something that may help your patient. And I would I would say that cannabis right now, with the limited amount, because we don't have AI models and we don't have all of our genetic profiles, is individualized medicine to its finest. And so, if your patient wants to experiment or try cannabis. I would support them in that. And then I would, I would I ask, how are, what is our goal of therapy? Is it to deal with pain? Is it to deal with sleep? You trial it. You start really low with a molecule that you think might help. So if it's sleep, probably THC. If it's neuropathy, maybe CBD. And there's a bunch of other ones that we're not going to be able to get into in this, in this podcast. And, and move up slowly, aiming to meet the goals of that patient. And I think that's, for me, the takeaway of, of application of all this complicated science and the mixed messages that we get. There's good reason that this medicine can help. We should treat it, um, destigmatize it, treat it as, as a medicine that's viable and see how our patients respond. I love that. That's such a good... Medicine good and art, right, Sanjay? What's that? Medicine's an art. It's not... It's, we want it to be science, but it's not. 
it's not or if it will if it is it'll be a long time before we get there and that's the humility of medicine and and our own you know fallibility uh and, and humanness in my personal opinion but one immediate takeaway i have is like i need to take cbd more seriously as a consideration if things are funky quote unquote and i can't figure it out and they're prescribed on 12 medications when they come established with me like it's something to think about you know i was kind of surprised in louisiana there is just right next to you know wine and beer uh cans of uh, and i'm sure y'all maybe had this a while you're like you just got that but it's you know thc drinks like they have a certain amount of thc in them and cbd in them and they're all different and varying um and and i've had a few patients that that are actually considerably decreasing their alcohol intake uh which maybe was was kind of a you know unhealthily uh an anxiety you know queller love yeah, they, that word all this episode just that. That. uh and then they're you know the liver function some of the problems i've had because they were alcohol related have kind of gotten uh improved with this with the so, so that's that's an immediate takeaway for sure but Cody, I appreciate you so much. If somebody does want to learn these things, um, the reason I had you was was easy. It's you're very data driven. You work in a major hospital. You're a pharmacist. Um, where exactly did you say we can find those things? I know I I love personally again uh, the Canigma, right? Which is the the, the cannabis Enigma. Um, is that a website or organization? Absolutely. So you can learn about any of the anything we talked about today. The Canigma has an article on it. it's Canigma.com. C-A-N-N-I-G-M-A. I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, so so that's a good place to find the information. If you want to find me, I'm on most of the platforms, uh, but primarily LinkedIn. That's uh, where I've done sort of all of my my startup and in, into this space. I, I post education all the time. I'm super accessible there. I'm also on Instagram. It's Cannabis Farm D. That's my degree, prefixed by my, my favorite plant. Um, and, and uh, you can definitely hit me there. I'm approachable. Um, I, I, you know, as you'll probably took away from this podcast, I don't have all the answers. I can just lead you to the idea, um, and, and help guide you. But I think if you send someone to LinkedIn or Instagram, those are probably the two places they can reach me personally. But if anything we talked about tickled your fancy today, there's an article about that topic on the Kenigma. So, Google your question and type in Kenigma and you're going to find something that's that's both reliable and also digestible, which is kind of hard to find. It is. And it all started with a cake for Grammy mm-hmm. so that she could enjoy her last year. You're absolutely Cody, Thank you so much. This was amazing. Cool. Thank you so much for having me, Sanjay. If you want to you know, talk weed or maybe psychedelics, I'm uh, also dabbling in into that world of professionalism. So I'd love to come back and we can talk about mushrooms and acid. That's a, absolutely anything that 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 can help cancer patients. I'm here for it. Mm-hmm.